what is Bitcoin? What is this technology? What does it mean? What does it enable? Realized that, yeah, this really is a transformational technology and, you know, came to the conclusion that this is going to be you know, the biggest financial and technological innovation probably of my lifetime. This is Open Out Crypto, a podcast exploring how blockchain and cryptocurrencies are shaping the financial markets of tomorrow with your hosts, Rumi Morales and Colleen Sullivan. Before we even begin, here's our obligatory disclaimer. The views Rumi and I share on the show are our own and not attributable to our respective firms and any other entities or projects we're involved with. Our firms may be investors or traders in some of the companies and projects we discuss on the show. Nothing we say should be considered as investment advice. And while we're always trying to be as accurate and timely as possible, sometimes we're wrong. You should always do your own research. Finally, I'm a lawyer, but not yours, and nothing I say should be construed as legal advice. Welcome to Open Out Crypto. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. I'm Rumi Morales, and I'm joined by Colleen Sullivan. Colleen and I have both been investors in this space since 2013, but we also have institutional experience. I'm coming from Goldman Sachs and CME group in a former life. And Colleen was with Sidley Austin. And it's our pleasure to be here and try to bridge the best we can the interesting worlds of both traditional finance and digital finance. What a wild time in crypto, Rumi. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, you know, and super excited that we're going to have Peter Johnson from Jump Capital as our guest on the show today. You and I have known Peter for years. He's one of the OGs in the Chicago crypto scene, and it's just been such a pleasure to collaborate with him over the years. Absolutely. He's bringing very interesting perspective, both from a trading background and an investing background with Jump Trading and Jump Capital. And as we've seen recently, it's been a very interesting time in the markets, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, what an interesting time. So just like I'll never forget March 12th, 2020, when we saw Bitcoin fall below 4,000, I will never forget Wednesday, May 19th. So on May 19th, we saw Bitcoin drop about 31% down to $30,000 and about 50% from its all-time high. And its all-time its all-time high was just the week prior as well, right? Yeah, a little bit before, but yeah, but I mean, it, it's it's amazing how much price movement we've seen since the beginning of the year. You know, and Ethereum had a rough time too. We saw Ethereum fall about 45% down to 1,800, and really no crypto asset was spared on the 19th. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but generally, you know, we see these dramatic and violent downward price movements due to the liquidations that cascade through the system and the lack of liquidity. I guess that said, you know, it's important to keep in mind that Bitcoin is still up about 300% in the last 12 months. Ethereum's up about 1100% in the last 12 months. And we started the year with global crypto market cap around 775 billion. And right now it's about 1.7 trillion. So it's still uh, amazing where we are, notwithstanding what happened on the 19th. Right. And in, and in historical context, back in 2013, so April 10, April 12, 2013, Bitcoin collapsed by 83%, right? And then we saw in 2013 to 2016, it also fell again, almost 87%. And then with the crypto winter, it fell 84%. So this is part of crypto, friends. For all of you who are just kind of joining in now, like this volatility and these drops have been part of what makes Bitcoin and crypto trading the interesting and unique asset class that it is. 
Right. I mean, you have to have that kind of volatility to have the growth that we've seen in the space. And and it's not just crypto. You know, Mark Yusko, founder right. of Morgan Creek Capital Management, had some interesting comments noting that over its 24-year history, Amazon has had a downward price spike every year, and that downward price has averaged 31%. And then Jim Bianco uh, of Bianco Research also had some interesting comments where he noted that you have to look in the traditional markets, you have to consider Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets as unproven technologies today, right? So let's look at historical price movements in the traditional markets for companies that started with unproven technologies like Apple. So if you look at you know the, the percentages you just mentioned, Rumi, those were not uncommon for Apple between the 80s right. and the early 2000s as Apple went from an unproven technology to you know a mainstay of all of our lives today. So I think that's important to note too, that there are similarities in the traditional markets to what we're seeing here today. Absolutely, and we can also dig into what happened with the crypto exchanges. I know there's some criticism for the CFIs of the world, uh, for people that wanted to be able to access Coinbase and couldn't, or Kraken and couldn't. But I'm, I'm reminded, you know, having been at the CME and in the exchange space, times of extreme market volatility, markets can get halted, right? People have these triggers and circuit breakers in place because even in traditional markets, it's not going to be smooth sailing all the time. It never is smooth sailing all the time, nor should it be. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, we definitely saw in the 19th, Binance and Coinbase, two of the world's largest exchanges, suffer some service outages. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not really anything new in crypto or, as you point out, new in traditional finance. Um, that said, it is problematic in this industry if you're trading with leverage and you can't get into the exchange to top up your margin when prices are falling because that then leads to mm -hmm. automatic liquidations and that lack of liquidity, you know, the combination of the lack of liquidity really exacerbates the down moves. So on the 19th, we saw more than 775,000 traders have their accounts liquidated, resulting in about eight and a half billion of crypto being liquidated. Now, importantly, that also means that buyers can't get in to buy. So we received a lot of calls on the morning of the 19th. We being CMT, CMT Digital, right? Yeah, from people that wanted to buy and wanted to know if we had better connectivity into exchanges to help them do that. So I think that's important to note. So my take on this is that due to market infrastructure challenges, you know, crypto prices fall to artificially low prices, and that's why we see healthy bounces as and when exchange services resume. So it is interesting to look at. So centralized exchanges essentially suffered from too many transactions to process. So what happened with decentralized exchanges? I think we should take a look at that too, because I don't know if you caught this, Rumi, mm -hmm. but there were a lot of tweets about how DeFi withstood the challenge of this extreme market down move. Right, I definitely caught that. People saying that centralized finance, CeFi is fragile and DeFi is anti-fragile. <laughs> is it as simple as that? It's a great question. You know, like I noticed um, Hayden Adams from Uniswap tweeted that Uniswap had a record day. So record day in volumes, right? I think they processed 6.1 billion um, notional. 
but what does that really mean? So what we saw, we dug into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And while Coinbase and the centralized exchanges were seeing way increased transaction volume, Uniswap saw a big decrease in daily transactions, as well as unique daily wallets trading on the platform. So why was that? You know, it's probably due to expensive gas prices that priced out a large majority of daily retail DEX traders. So get this, Rumi. At its peak on the 19th, Uniswap transaction fees were $3,800 in gas. So the average gas fees for Q1, just generally in DeFi, were $23. So that tells you how expensive it was to transact on the 19th. So that tells me (laughs) that the people transacting in DeFi were the whales and prop trading firms because they could afford the really high gas fees and they wanted to be in there to take advantage of ARB opportunities across DEXs and centralized exchanges. So the question I would pose is, did the expense of transacting in DeFi almost protect the DeFi ecosystem because retail people couldn't get in. It was just too cost prohibitive. I think that's such an important point to make, especially for people who celebrate decentralized exchanges as being in the hands of everyone and not and everyone having equal access and opportunity to launch a product or trade it. Not in this case, right, is what we're saying. You cannot get you cannot get around gas fees uh, when they go up that high. Yeah, and it's changing, I mean, for sure. So we know that right around the corner, we have better scalability solutions and that will bring down gas fees. And then you probably caught this, um, Coinbase recently added browser functionality for Coinbase Wallet. So Mm -hmm. that is building a bridge between CFI and DeFi, which means we'll have more users in the DeFi ecosystem. So it will be interesting to see if these DeFi protocols and apps can scale as we have better scalability and more users. You know, I think that in its earnings report, Coinbase said that they had over 6 million monthly active users and I think 56 million verified users. Users on Uniswap on the 19th totaled 42,000. So that is so small compared to what the centralized Mm -hmm. exchanges are dealing with. And I think that consensus put out in its Q1 DeFi report that only 2% of all Ethereum wallet addresses have ever interacted with DeFi. So we have a lot more to grow in DeFi. There's a tremendous amount to do, but I guess what also concerns me a little bit in this space is what with what happened, the regulatory scrutiny or the, 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 the political side of this kind of waking up. And like we said, if, um, there's been volatility in the past, and this is not necessarily anything new, but I was kind of surprised to see on the front page of Dredge Report, of all places, uh, the main headlines were all about crypto, its collapse, Elon Musk, Dogecoin, you know, things that I think are really taking away from these important possibilities of really improving our financial system. The CFI, the DeFi bridges, improving scalability. This is stuff that we want to see. And I'm really concerned about the excess hype and the lack of awareness and unfortunately, probably greater regulatory scrutiny uh, because of what had happened that are going to also inhibit the growth of this industry. 
So Rumi, let's pull on a few of the threads. Let, let's pull on Elon a little bit and let's pull on regulatory. Um, because what we didn't talk about yet, and, and I think this is where you're going, is what caused the, the, the drop that we saw. And it, certainly I think Elon was a factor, but, but here's my unpopular opinion perhaps on what Elon Musk is doing. So I look at me and you, right? And we've been in this space for eight years. And I can tell you that every single day I'm learning more yeah. than I already understand. So I would posit that Elon is learning in public. I don't think he's a master of the Bitcoin system. I don't think he understands lightning at all based on some of the tweets he had about improving Doge. I think he's learning out loud. And I think it's unfortunately having a detrimental impact on the industry. But, but that's what I think about him. On the regulatory side, I mean, no doubt, and as we'll hear Peter Johnson mention um, a little bit later, regulatory uncertainty remains a big risk in this space. Chairman Gensler made a few remarks that concerned people where he said a lot of crypto tokens are securities, and he even used the term investment contract tokens. And he also said that trading in Bitcoin needs more investor protection and specifically noted that there's no federal authority to oversee the crypto spot markets and that that's something he intends to work with Congress on. We also had Michael Sue, the new acting comptroller of the currency, release remarks that he prepared in advance of testifying in front of the House Committee on Financial Services which included some worrisome statements about potentially walking okay. back some of the interpretive letters that former acting OCC had Brian Brooks put out with respect to banks' ability to custody crypto. Um, so that is concerning. It is concerning. I think you know Treasury also released a statement that crypto transfers above $10,000 need to be reported to the IRS. So there's suddenly like noises popping around amongst U.S. government officials focusing with harder precision on elements of crypto. And I, I personally don't know uh, if they're targeting you know, these precision tools in the right places. But at the same time, you know, obviously China is now making noises that some people say it's reg it's more than the regular fear, uncertainty, and doubt that sometimes we, we, we get when the Chinese government as well states things around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Um, adding on top of this, obviously, I personally think this is good for the maturation of the cryptocurrency industry, but there are a number of bad things happening right now in the larger macro economy too, right? Whether it's right. supply supply chain shocks or higher inflation or Gaza and Israel. And guess what? It's not just a cryptocurrency market problem. We are seeing problems in the greater macro economy. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, you, before you would think that crypto was insulated and separate from everything that was happening in the world. But with institutional traders now trading in both markets, with there being greater infrastructure development around digital markets, and it was interesting for me to also see that uh, the Federal Reserve had said that they were going to be coming out shortly with more information around a central bank digital currency that they've been developing. It's like, wow, this stuff is really being integrated, and you cannot separate the crypto markets from the broader global macro economy. Yeah, so Rumi, we've covered three of the potential events that could have impacted the markets here with China, the regulatory environment, and Elon. And there were a few other things happening also that could have had an impact, including Colonial Pipeline, 
you know, we saw that there was a $5 million ransom payment in Bitcoin made to the dark side group. Um, and Elliptic just released a report saying that it was actually an aggregate over the last, I think, seven or eight months, 90 million you know, worth of Bitcoin that's been paid to DarkSide from various groups um, in ransom payments. So that could have had an impact. And then, of course, we had taxes due in the United States on May 17th. And given how much appreciation we've seen in the space, it's not unreasonable to think that people were taking some of that off in order to pay taxes. So I think this, you know, downturn we saw could have been a convergence of all of these factors or just general stress in the system. Part of me wants to call it a perfect storm, but it's probably like so many things in crypto, an imperfect storm. Yes. Uh, there's so many increasing forces here at play. Uh, and uh, I'm just kind of left thinking two things. Number one, Bitcoin is still here for all the crashes we've had before in the past. And certainly with the crypto winter, I think many people felt almost existentially that it might be over. But in this case, no one's talking about that. You know, Bitcoin and crypto assets have continued to prove their resilience. That's really important. It's such a great point because neither the Bitcoin system, the Ethereum system or any of these other systems have changed. Even though the price has changed, they're still doing the same thing that they do day in and day out, facilitating distributed peer to peer digital transactions and running smart contracts. But I guess the other thing that I'm left with is, you know, when there have been market crashes, in the traditional markets in the past, there's usually some type of uh, discussion group or there's some analysis or there's some task force. Like when the flash crash happened, people looked back and wondered why. The innovation and the speed in the crypto world is happening so fast that I'm not sure enough people are going to be analyzing what just happened and for us to be able to learn to improve the next time around. So I would think with more, more crises and more drops in the market as we go ahead, um, they will probably happen with more frequency than when you'll find in the traditional markets, not necessarily because you don't have regulators watching over, but because we're not taking enough time to learn about what happened and how to improve it going forward. It is our pleasure to welcome Peter Johnson from Jump Capital. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hey, Rumi. Hey, Colleen. I'm doing fantastic. This this brings me back to all of the panels that the three of us did in 2017 <laughs> in, in Chicago. The good old days. The memories back then. It's funny when we look back and see how much uh, has changed in the marketplace. And yet, obviously, we're also suffering, I think, through some PTSD of some ups and downs we've had before as well. So I would love to just discuss uh, your experiences in this in this space and also looking forward. So why don't you just entertain us first? Let us know how you got into this crypto business to begin with. Yeah, so how I got into this crypto business. So I started at Jump Capital in 2013, um, uh, just as the firm was getting started. So Jump Capital, we are the venture capital affiliate of, of Jump Trading. Uh, we started the capital side about eight years ago, and I joined just as the firm was getting started. Um, really saw it as a unique opportunity to help build a venture firm from from the ground up and um you know do that alongside jump trading which is just an incredible trading firm so, so were you fo were you focused on digital assets from the start so or? i wasn't at the very beginning yeah so when i so my background was uh working with financial institutions so banks and brokerages uh, insurance companies and when i started at jump capital i was really focused on fintech i'd, I'd heard of bitcoin but i wasn't really focused on you know, Bitcoin and crypto, which was just Bitcoin uh, at the very beginning. Um, although shortly after I started at Jump, 
um, in 2013 is when I really started paying attention to Bitcoin. It, I do remember the, like the first time that it kind of clicked for me was when um, Cyprus uh, seized the de- some of the deposits of, um, of people uh, from, the, from their bank accounts and the, the mm-hmm. price of Bitcoin spiked on that. And that's when I started paying attention. I'm like, like, is, is this real? Like, are people really moving like their, their, you know, their currency to this magical internet money? Cause it's like, it's a, a safer, better place to be. Um, you know, didn't really believe it at first, but then started doing my research and, you know, really understanding, you know, what is Bitcoin? What is this technology? What does it mean? What does it enable? And, you know, realized that, yeah, this really is a, transformational technology that it allows mm-hmm. you know for the first time anyone in the anyone anywhere in the world can transfer value to anyone else without the need for a trusted third party uh, it enables digital scarcity so you can, can store value without having to trust any intermediary and you know came to the conclusion that this is going to be you know the biggest financial and technological innovation probably of my lifetime and really just started spending a ton of time on it. Um, you know, started learning in 2013, uh, personally started, you know, buying Bitcoin in 2014. And then in 2015, we started as a firm investing in uh, the equity of crypto companies and later started doing token investments as well. Um, okay. So it was a, uh, you know, a learning process as I think it is for most people. Sure, and are you, inv- you mentioned jump trading, are you investing on, for business utilization as well? Is it a strategic investments that you're making on behalf of jump or jump trading or what's the relationship and how do you, how are you guys making your investment decisions? Yeah, so there are two types of investments that we make in, in crypto companies and in, in companies more generally. Um, one is investments that are purely financial investments that don't necessarily have a strategic angle and oftentimes you don't even need to have anything to do with jump trading that we're investing purely because we think that they're good financial investments. And that, that's the majority of what we do. And the way that we're structured, we are a you know separately structured venture capital fund. We're currently investing out of our sixth fund. It's a $200 million fund that is set up for us to invest independently for financial returns. And that's you know what we do. Um, we do also make the second type of investment, which is investments that are more strategic in nature. And that's where we partner with the folks on the trading side of the firm to come in and not just be an investor, but also be a you know, customer, a partner, a liquidity provider, you know, in crypto, you know, getting involved in running nodes and getting involved in governance and all of those things that we can do because of you know, this incredible asset we have on, on the trading side that's much deeper you know, than that we could just do as an investor. For the, for, so for those types of investments, we are you know, investing for you know, it's, it's, it's certainly for financial purposes, but it's also because we think that there's a ton of value that we can bring from the trading side of the firm. That's really great to hear. I think that Chicago, where you are based, is really unique in that a number of the prop trading firms are getting into venture investing in this space. Why do, why do you think it is that in Chicago, the prop trading firms are the ones that are investing in digital assets more than the traditional venture firms that we have out here? Yeah, I, I think it's because like I said, the, the trading firms that are involved in the space can go deeper with, with these projects. And I also think that mm-hmm. they can move faster than a lot of more traditional firms. If you look at you know, Jump, CMT, DRW, it's largely proprietary capital, both at the trading right. side of the firm and, and on the venture side of the firms. Uh, so that enables them just to move faster and make decisions that you know, it takes a traditional you know, venture firm or certainly a financial institution much, much longer time to 
you know, move quickly. We can do things of being involved with these projects that other, you know, other investors just can't do. So we are actually trading these assets. You know, we're participating in governance. We're, you know, running nodes, like I said. We're helping with token listings. Um, all of these things that just really helps us understand the, you know, the ecosystem and the projects to, I think, a level that's that's deeper and and more helpful um, than a traditional venture investor who, you know, is isn't as involved as deeply in the space. Um, so it's a little bit more difficult for a lot of them. So if I can brag on your behalf, then uh, I liked your post on I think it was LinkedIn the other day talking about your unicorns. I have to think that this exposure and this understanding of the markets very broadly is helpful to producing some of the great winners that you have today. But I'm going to let you brag about some of your unicorns and your, your favorite <laughs> performers here. Uh, thank you. Yes, I, I did recently find out that a group of unicorns is called a blessing of unicorns. Mm -hmm. It's not a herd, it's a <laughs> blessing, which is pretty cool. Uh, and yeah, so we at Jump Capital, we're investors in 10 companies uh, that are billion dollar companies, unicorns. Uh, seven of those are in the crypto space. Uh, companies like BlockFi, Voyager, Bitso, BitGo, Bitpanda, OSL. Um, we have another one that's not announced. We have actually, I think three more across the firm that I think are, are raising, that I know are raising at, at billion dollar plus valuations right now. Um, so yeah, so we've been really successful with, with those investments. I, I do think a lot of it is one is having the strong theses that we have. Like one of our theses early on was we think that the uh, fiat on ramps, the regulated, trusted, um, you know, exchanges and brokerages in different parts of the world that have the right regulatory licenses, that have the banking relationships, that have trusted brands, that those are going to be very big winners. And we've had a lot of success with that with companies like you know Bitpanda and OSL and Bitso. Uh, also big investors in the custody space, which has been very successful with BitGo and Curve. Um, Curve, not a billion dollar company, but a very, very good um, exit there to pay PayPal. Um, so yeah, and a lot of those too, like we have gotten behind a lot of these companies from from a trading perspective. And I think that's been very, it's been helpful in our, our diligence and also helpful in, in helping these companies scale. Yeah, and Peter, in the context of trading and venture working together and the insights that you're able to glean from that partnership, I would love for you to just share a few of the details on Pith. I think it's going to be a watershed moment for DeFi, and I'd love for you to share more about that if you can. Yeah, so Pith is something that we are incredibly excited about, uh, that the the trading team at Jump Trading is incredibly excited about. Um, so what, what Pith is, so we are collaborating on a new world oracle project called Pith, and its focus is on market data, and specifically high performance, very precise, market data that can be injected into smart contracts. And the reason that we're doing that is that we think one of the great things about DeFi is that you can have this risk transfer that's embedded in you know, smart contracts. If you want to hedge the risk of the Euro or you want exposure to Tesla, you can do that all in, in DeFi. But in order to do that, you need very precise and high quality um, data that's telling you, you know, what those prices are, did the price ever you know, touch this price or did it trade in this band, et cetera, that you can write these smart contracts based on. And when we looked out there, the other oracles that are available, they're just not the kind of extreme high performance that you need for trading firms and hedge funds and institutions to put 
you know, millions and billions of dollars into these types of contracts. So we decided that we were going to collaborate with a group of others in the industry to build that kind of utility that we th think was needed to provide that data and enable those types of contracts to exist. And we decided to build that on the Solana blockchain, um, which, which is something we're very excited about. Uh, very high through, throughput, high performance blockchain. Uh, so starting on Solana, it will be um, broadcast out to other blockchains, uh, but starting at the fa fastest blockchain and, and going from there. And I think one of the other important elements there is all of this data is legally approved given where it's coming from. And I think that's been a challenge with some of the existing oracles. I just, I'm going to be interested to see what those link Marines are doing to you on Twitter once the pith becomes widespread adoption across DeFi. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on, you know, I joke, like if I had a Bitcoin for every person that's asked me, how do you have those rates over in the crypto markets when I'm getting 0% interest on my dollars in a bank account, I would be, you know, probably richer than Elon. But you wrote an absolutely fantastic report that covered that. Could you share some of the insights that you learned? Um, and I'm also curious, how, what was the process for putting that together? It must have taken a decent amount of time um, and, and quite a few conversations, I would guess, with different groups. But would love if you could share some of that with us, too. Yeah, so I wrote that for the, that exact reason, that, that I was getting a ton of questions from, from people you know, a lot of folks outside of crypto, some folks in crypto that were asking like, you know, should I, should I move my money to, to BlockFi or to Voyager? I can earn eight, 10% on my dollars. I can earn 5% on my Bitcoin. Like, is, is this real? Is this legit? Like, how does this work? Um, and so, yeah, like I, I knew how it worked on the back end, and, and I wanted to, to share that, the knowledge. Um, so the reason um, that, you know, you can earn these high yields on, on, on stable coins and on crypto is that there's very high borrowing demand, largely from trading firms. That trading firms, there's a number of, you know, profitable trades that trading firms are engaged in, whether that's, you know, the basis trade, you know, buying spot and selling futures, you're doing cross-exchange arbitrage. Um, there used to be a, a, you know, the grayscale trade trading on the, the grayscale premium. There's now actually an interesting reverse trade. Yeah. You can trade on, on the discount. You can, you can combine the discount with the futures premium and um, do an interesting trade there. Their point being is that there are a lot of interesting trades that are very profitable uh, in, in the crypto space. There's also just a lot of traders that want to leverage long. I mean, there's huge demand for, for leverage um, and traders will pay for that. So there's this massive dem borrowing demand in the space and there is not a huge amount of supply. Um, because largely because traditional financial institutions, banks are not lending into this space. Like there are, you cannot, if you're a hedge fund, you can't go to your prime broker and have them, you know, provide you a bunch of, you know, leverage uh, into, into crypto exchanges. As a matter of fact, like the, the way that crypto is um, kind of the market infrastructure is thus that it really makes this capital inefficiency or capital need so much more, um, it's just such a bigger problem because of the the market structure and as, as you know um you need to pre-fund on every exchange if you're trading in crypto so you know if you want to trade across 10 exchanges and you want the ability to buy or sell a million dollars of bitcoin you got to fund a million dollars of bitcoin and a million dollars of cash to each of those 10 exchanges that's 20 million dollars you're putting out for that ability in the traditional world if you wanted that you would just go to your prime broker you would give them maybe a quarter of a million dollars and you'd have that same 
you know, ability to buy and sell. So it's like eight times more capital that you need in the capital in the in the crypto world for the same, uh, you know, trading flexibility. Um, so again, there's just this this huge demand for capital, and there's folks that are willing to pay, you know, high rates, you know, 10, 13, 15 plus percent um, for that borrowing capacity. So that's why you can, you know, you can put dollars with BlockFi or 10 percent on them right now because there's trading firms on the back end that are paying, you know, 13, 15% to borrow those assets. I would encourage everyone to check out Peter's crypto credit market breakdown. You can find it on Jump Capital's website. We'll also put it in our show notes. Uh, it's required mandatory <laughs> reading for any listener here. Please, uh, please check it out because um, what Peter's described in the crypto credit market breakdown report just valuable information for anyone who really wants to learn more about this space. So Peter, we like to uh, close our conversations and we didn't prep you on this at all. This was not part of the, the pre-plan, but we like to cr close these conversations with some rapid fire questions. That, that sounds uh, great. Okay, so we'll start. I'll, I'll, I'll give this one a little bit of a preamble though, because you famously, uh, in at least in the Chicago scene, predicted that Bitcoin was gonna hit 50,000 back in November of last year. And I think a number of people thought you were crazy. And here we are, we, we've, we've, we've gone past it, we've gone a little below it. Um, so question for you, first question, rapid fire. Bitcoin price, July 4th, 2020. <gasps> Bitcoin price, July 4th, 2021. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have stopped making specific Bitcoin price predictions. I, I never did in the past. That's the one Bitcoin price prediction I've, I think I've ever publicly made, and I won't do it again. I will say this. I think that people underestimate just like how markets overshoot and then mm -hmm. undershoot when they're finding, you know, an equilibrium price. So whatever you think Bitcoin's equilibrium price will be, if, if it is 10% of gold or 100% of gold or, you know, twice gold, whatever you think that is going to be in the long term, it's probably going to massively overshoot that and then come down and have a heart wrenching, you know, under undershoot. Uh, to go way below that and then kind of go up and down before it and eventually ends at equilibrium because that's how markets work. Um, so I won't give a specific price prediction, but I do think that over the next couple of years, uh, Bitcoin will go much, much higher than most people expect. NFTs, bullish, bearish. I think we're clearly uh, or we have been in a bubble for NFTs. I think that the there is an underlying um, kind of theme and innovation there that will be meaningful over the next couple of years. Um, but it's been somewhat overblown recently. Regulation, are you feeling positive? Or are you feeling negative in the United States, how things are trending? I am feeling positive because I feel like there are people in the right positions of power that understand crypto. Um, and there are you know, people like Colleen that spend a lot of time with regulators and help educate them on what's going on. And I think that that is really important. And I think that we're moving in the right direction. Um, it's still by far one of the biggest risks to crypto, uh, but I'm feeling pretty good about it. And perhaps most important, Cubs or White Sox? I'm from Minnesota. I'm a Twins fan. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just saved ourselves right. from alienating listeners. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Peter. If people want to get in touch with you or Jump Capital or have a business that they would like to be able to pitch, what's the best way to, to reach out? Uh, yeah, you can check out our website at jumpcap.com. And then you can reach me uh, on Twitter. I'm at the Chicago VC. 
which is a must follow, by the way. I have notifications on for all your tweets. So if you're wondering why they, I like them within a second of them coming out, <laughs> I get notified. They're awesome. So really good source of information there for people to follow Peter. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Colleen, for another great conversation. We obviously have to thank Peter as well for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Rumi. This has been a fun one. Yeah, for sure. And for anyone who wants to continue that fun, we have a newsletter as well. Uh, so please feel free to check that out at openoutcrypto.substack.com, where you can read more thoughts about our conversation with Peter. We'll also include links to events. We hope that you subscribe. Obviously, you can go to our website, openoutcrypto.com, and check us out on Twitter at Open Out Crypto. For anyone who's planning on traveling to Bitcoin 2021, please go find Colleen because she will be there. <laughs> I will be Unless there. Unless you want to hide. <laughs> you, yeah. I might be hiding. <laughs> I think it's going to be a little bonkers. And if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to tell your friends and give us a friendly rating uh, wherever you download and listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening to Open Out Crypto. Please reach out to us on Twitter at Open Out Crypto and by email at info at openoutcrypto.com. Check out our website for show notes and other information about the show, our hosts, and our guests. Thanks for listening.